Right. Well, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. As we've seen from the first uh, two sermons in our, or first three sermons, I should say, when we include the introductory sermon that Cameron helpfully gave us to kind of lay out uh, the message of Hosea and where we're we going with it, we've seen that the first three chapters of Hosea um, present something of a, a lived prophecy to us. They, they enact in a, in a visible, visible and, and visceral way uh, the relationship that Israel has, or really the breaking of the relationship that Israel has done with God. So the, the relationship of God to Israel is, is played out in the relationship of Hosea to Gomer, his wife. And, and this analogy really frames the, the whole rest of the uh, book of Hosea, the whole rest of Hosea's prophecy. Israel was to, was to understand their, their experiences and their prosperity and their coming exile and their false worship and, and their joys and their sorrows and everything as not somehow... Uh, just the way things are, but as spiritually significant, a a as really weighted with uh, implications about the greatest and most basic relationship that there is, namely our relationship with God. You know, uh, Cornelius Van Til, he was a Christian man who taught apologetics a generation or so ago. He once said that if there were a dial on, on the radio of human experience to which sinful people could turn and find a station uh, on which they wouldn't hear the voice of God speaking to them in some way, we would turn to that station again and again and again and never turn it off. But the fact is, there is no such radio station in human life. There's nowhere we, where we can turn and not be confronted about the truth of who God is and what he requires of us. There's nowhere where we can turn, not a sorrow, not a joy, not an experience, not a job, not a relationship in which something about our relationship to God doesn't have something to say to us. But often, this is not how we see things. We, you know, life develops a certain rhythm, and we assume that things will go on as we're used to them going on. We uh, take God's mercy for granted. We go comfortable and complacent with the things that we have. We, we hardly imagine that God could possibly promise us anything greater. Uh, you know, and without Jesus, we, we love and esteem and adore and worship, and worship things that are trivial and have almost no significance. And, and this is really the, the reality of life under the curse. And so it's a great mercy. It's a great mercy of God to wake us up to the reality of the way things really are. You know, and this is the purpose of this lived prophecy, this enactment of the relationship of, of Hosea and Gomer and Israel and, and God. Um, it's really to give the Israelites a picture of what God's estimation of the situation really is. And at the period, it, uh, we saw this when Cameron did the introductory sermon, at the, at the period when Hosea begins his uh, prophetic ministry, um, you know, Israel, you know, they were kind of living large. Life was good. Jeroboam II was king, and he had had lots of victories on the battlefield. He had subdued lots of enemies. Economically, they were prosperous. You know, they thought, well, you know, God's judgment, where's that? I don't, I don't see God's judgment coming anytime soon. Uh, so it seemed. But they oppressed the poor and, and pursued false gods and trusted in their own strength and, and abandoned God. So through Hosea, God shows Israel what they've really done. They've not simply done what needed doing, which is the rationalization that we so often give to our sin. Uh, rather, they've committed harlotry. Their way of life is unfaithful. It's abhorrent and wicked. And it, is, it has enslaved them to, to empty promises. 
And yet, yet, even in this, God shows us his great mercy and care. For in this chapter, we see that God will use his discipline, his chastisement, to bring his people back to him. His discipline will remove their empty way of life and bring them to a place where they can know and be known without guilt and fear and shame. And so really, this chapter teaches us, this is, this is the key truth, I think, God perseveres in love to his people by disciplining us so that we might love him above all else. And so I ask you this question. What difference does the knowledge of God's love for you make in your life? What difference does the knowledge of God for you make in your life? Perhaps this is the question that ought to be kind of brewing in the background of our minds as we consider uh, this text, um, for it made a very great difference for the people of Israel to know that God loved them, despite his discipline of them. So let's see it from the text. Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is a harlot, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. We'll pause there for just a minute. So God tells Hosea to go again and, and love Gomer, despite her unfaithfulness and despite her harlotry. And it is often the case that when biblical authors speak in a sort of unusual way, what they're trying to do is cue us in to important and and weighty truths. And it seems that this is the case here. Because think about it. God doesn't tell Hosea, go love Gomer again, but go love a woman. And because of this, some scholars speculate that what's really happening is that it's not Gomer that Hosea is pursuing. It's some other a woman who either is already uh, unfaithful to someone else or you know, is, is going to be unfaithful just like Gomer had been unfaithful. Um, so they really don't, they think that there's reason to speculate that this isn't Gomer at all, but I don't think that's quite right. And the reason I don't think it's right is because the reason that Hosea, or God rather, gives to Hosea for pursuing Gomer again is that it will demonstrate his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness to Israel. That is to say that God says to Hosea, love like I love. Pursue like I pursue. Be faithful despite the unfaithfulness of your spouse. And the analogy doesn't work if Hosea goes off and and casts off Gomer and and pursues another woman. That doesn't communicate God's faithfulness to Israel. That that communicates a message mainly of of doom and and gloom to Israel, that they might be actually in Gomer's situation and be cast off. So it makes a mess of the flow of the whole story to suppose that Gomer has been divorced and cast off and another adulterous woman is the object of Hosea's affections. And thus I think that the reason why uh, Hosea begins to clue us into the the beginning of this narrative here by saying, go love another woman rather than uh, Gomer, is because to show us something of the the heaviness of harlotry and the heaviness of spiritual adultery. It It makes us less than we were meant to be It erases our identity. In pursuing things that we think will give us life, we actually become less than fully human. We become a commodity. We become commodified. And we become just another tool in the endless pursuit of pleasure and get cast away and thrown off. And our identity is wholly bound up in things that can not support us, not support what we were made to be. And we see this also in a very stark way when God sets up the contrast between his love for his people and their love for, of all things, cakes of raisins. Now, this possibly has reference to um, uh, food used in in pagan worship 
uh, in which raisin cakes were used as maybe something of an aphrodisiac in fertility cults. And so it may have a very, um, a very striking and, and condemning sort of uh, purpose here. But even so, the contrast is still pretty jarring. You know, in our sin, we, we love and, and esteem what's, what's trivial and, and worship and adore what's, what's enslaving. And in this, we hardly imagine the magnitude of our offense against God. We, we don't really count our sin as all that bad, but instead insist that what we've done is perfectly reasonable and justifiable. But the absurdity of this can be seen in, in the following thoughts. God comes after us as a husband. This means that God is committed to us. He is united to us by the covenant he has made with his people. His nature is such that he will not forget or be unfaithful to his people. He is utterly steadfast and unshakable. He always feels and does what is just and right and in keeping with his promises. So nothing is left undone by him, ever. No one can charge God with ever forgetting to care about him. No one can say God did not provide for her. And consider also what it means to be the bride of Christ. Uh, think about what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about uh, the, 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 the mirror that human marriage is to uh, the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And one of the implications he draws out from that is he says, uh, if a husband doesn't love his wife, it's as if he doesn't love himself. Now think about the profound implications this has for what it means when God calls us to return to faithfulness to him. His commandments aren't burdensome. They're not contrary to our joy. They can't be otherwise than for our greatest good. And this is because he is not merely our master, but our husband. And these are not the stern commandments of a harsh and overbearing uh, deity or, or, or a distant monarch. This is the correction of one who cannot do anything but will the greatest good for his people because he is our husband. And there's a reason the Bible uses language like this that maybe strikes us as a little too familiar or maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It's really to remind us of the greatness of God's love for us. His love for his people is bigger than anything we would ever dare to imagine. I mean, what a thing to be told by the creator of the universe that you are as dear to him as a spouse. And what consolation this brings, you know, in life, in, in the various afflictions and heartbreaks that we uh, experience. You know, did, did God not create our bodies? Did he not create the work that we've been called to do? Is, uh, are our relationships not the... the, the the result of his wisdom and providence? Did he not say that a sparrow cannot fall to the ground except that he knows it? And yet in all his power and in all his might, he is as a husband to you. Caring, correcting, leading, guiding, and all in the perfect love of one who supremely loves himself and will never be unfaithful because it's contrary to, to be unfaithful is contrary to who he, who he is. So, in all of this, consider the magnitude of the offense of our sin against God. In our sin, we proclaim that we don't care that God loves us so greatly. We proclaim that he is not good enough, he's not sufficient enough to fulfill our desires. It is betrayal of the worst kind. It is totally without sense and totally abhorrent. And consider also that in our sin, we don't remember that God is our provider. All that we have, we have by his hand. This reveals that when we love anything in place of him, what we're actually saying is, I have this by my strength, not by God's. To love cakes of raisins or put in that place anything that we idolize in place of God is to act as though God did not provide them. 
We act as though we, we have and, and hold these things uh, that we idolize by our own strength or our own skill or ingenuity. You know, we, we hear Paul say to us, what do you have that you did not receive? And we say, well, that's all right for, for salvation and justification, all that sort of ephemeral, abstract stuff. You know, but, but my job, no, I got that because of me. No. Or, or my car or my house or my relationships or whatever it is, you know, that, that, that's on me. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll lean on God for all the stuff that I know I can't possibly with any good sense get away with, but for all that other stuff, yeah, that, that's, that's for me. But it shows that when we act this way, when we think this way, that we put in place uh, these things that we idolize in the place of God's provision. And we, uh, we idolize them beyond what, what, what they ought to be. They can't bury the weight of our worship. And we also don't remember that sin is enslaving. Isn't it, isn't it strange the way that Hosea moves from verse 1 to verse 2? It's just sort of a, as a matter-of-fact way. He doesn't tell us why it's necessary to purchase Gomer. You know, there wasn't any custom in ancient Israel of purchasing, purchasing back an adulterous wife. So we must assume that you know, she became enslaved or indebted in some way. And we don't know how. Evidently, Hosea doesn't think it's important to tell us. But the critical fact is that Gomer's unfaithfulness has resulted in enslavement or indebtedness of, of some kind, in some very significant kind. And this is really the result of chasing after any false god. Sin doesn't serve, it demands. Idols don't give, they take, and they take. Sin doesn't provide, it demands more and more and more. Sin is kind of like a, a predatory lender. You know, it, it lures you in, uh, with the promise of easy joy financed on the, the back of your supposedly excellent moral credit and worth in order to chain you, body and soul, to an interest you didn't perceive, you know, shackled to a debt you can never repay for a joy that didn't last. And sin doesn't relinquish its hold on you, it grips more and more. And so consider how foolish we are to think we can manage sin and be done with it you know, as we please, little imagining the heavy price our freedom demands. Hosea must pay both in money and in barley, and that suggests that it was, it was a hard thing for him to come up with the price that his credit, uh, Gomer's creditors demanded, and yet this is really trivial in comparison to the infinite cost that God paid in giving up his son to pay the price of our freedom, pay the price of our enslavement to sin, and yet he was willing to pay it because he loves us. So the more we come to grips with the with the horrific and enslaving consequences of sin, the more we will marvel at God's love for us. And considering God's love for us, we will more readily obey him from the heart because we know that in everything, he is for us and not against us. So I think that raises a question for us. How has God, to con how has God continued to pursue you in love despite your unfaithfulness to him? And what difference has this made in your struggle against sin? What difference has this made in your struggle against sin? Do we try to fight sin in the strength of, um, well, I know this is what God commands me to do, and I know that it seems to be good, lots of people say so anyway, so I'll just try to summon the strength in my own will and, and do it. You know, I'll set a schedule to read my Bible, and, and maybe this time it'll really work, or you know, um, I'll, I'll try to love that really difficult person. Uh, maybe I'll go over and, and share a meal with them, even though I really don't want to. You know, I'll really, really, really try to do it. Well, if we try to do that without remembering that God loves us and he is for us in every good way, then it's so easy to get cast aside when challenges come our way or to get discouraged when we find that in our own flesh, actually, we don't have what it takes to obey God. 
But when we remember that God is for us and that God loves us, and when we come to him and have our faith nourished by his promises and the gospel preached to us in his word and in the sacraments and the fellowship of saints, and when we find our joy and strength in that, then we find that obedience flows as almost a natural result, that God, the Spirit, uses these things to awaken affections for us and obedience in us. And so the key for us is not um, to try to obey God without any remembrance of his goodness to us, it's to remember that he is good and, and good to us and for us and that he loves us. And out of that, to have new affections and new desires grow so that more and more we love him and truly from the heart. So hear what Derek Kidner says about this passage. He says, the again in God's command, the again in God's command to Hosea, faced the fact that old wounds would have to be reopened and what had happened once might happen yet again. Also, the adultery, God reminded him, was still in progress. It had been no isolated lapse, but a desertion which added a continuing insult to the injury. Perhaps this is why Hosea captures, as no other writer does, the tension within God's love for the elect, for he refuses to ease the pain of the relationship, either by compromise or by quitting. Either by compromise or by quitting. And that's important, too. It's not as though that God eases the pain of our rebellion against him, of Israel's rebellion against him by saying, well, I'll relax the standards just this once because I love them. Or he doesn't ease the pain by saying, well, away with these people, which is so often the case. Earlier this week, I was reading an article about someone at a major college campus who was dealing with some, uh, just, just some issues on the faculty and, and certain members of the faculty had behaved in a really an abominable way, um, just being rude and, and, and spiteful and, and these sorts of things. And this person turned around and said, when these people act this way, you've got to go. Away with you. We don't want you anymore. And I'm not saying that, that, should, that there aren't real implications to the actions that we have, and sometimes relationships, relationships aren't broken, and sometimes there are sad consequences. But consider that that is not the way that God, teach, uh, uh, God uh, engages with us. He doesn't say to us, away with you, go away, I have no time for you. Which is so often the way that we, you know, uh, we get into ways of thinking. Someone betrays our trust. Uh, a relationship goes sour. Um, someone, you know, or, or their message just kind of intrudes in our lives and we think, ah, I don't have time for this. I've got enough time, you know, hard enough time trying to deal with what I've got going on in my own life. I, I don't need this. So away with you. And maybe we don't use those exact words, but that's certainly our attitude. And yet this is not what God does. So he never quits. He never quits. He pursues us again and again and again. He is long-suffering. And yet even in that pursuit, that pursuit of us, he doesn't ease the relationship by relaxing his standards. He doesn't will anything less than what is good for us, and his commandments are good for us. His fellowship in perfect purity and peace is what we were made for. And so again and again, he is using his discipline to pursue us and to make us the kind of people that can enjoy him forever. So again, let's turn to the text and see it explained a little bit more. Picking up in verse three. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the harlot or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, Whatever Gomer was expecting, Hosea's manner of treating her after her redemption must have seemed really strange. 
He doesn't just say that she must no longer play the harlot or be adulteress, but that for a time, even in their own restored marriage, they will not enjoy that intimacy which they ought to enjoy by right. And this seems to be the sense of Hosea's statement that he will treat Gomer in the same way that he demands of her, that is, total abstinence for a time. And Gomer and Hosea were restored in relationship, but their relationship was not yet what it should be. What they ought to have enjoyed in marriage had been corrupted and broken by Gomer's adultery, and it was necessary to learn that this is not the way it was meant to be between them. Hosea did not redeem Gomer merely to treat her in the same way that her false lovers had treated her. Her estimation of the sin that she loved was not merely uh, wrong, or not merely misdirected, it was wrong. So it was necessary to learn that her relationship with Hosea had to be founded upon something better and more lasting, upon a love greater than that uh, experienced in the pleasures of intimacy. And then Hosea draws this connection between this way of treating Gomer and God's way of treating Israel through his disciplining judgment. They will lose things that they have loved in place of God for a time. And notice that of the things that God says they will lose in verse 4, only the household gods are intrinsically evil. The other things God takes from them, uh, or takes from his people, are not wrong in themselves, but they have been used by the people of Israel to worship and serve false idols and, and foolish ambitions apart from God. So even things that, that ought to be good when worshipped in place of God turn out to be damaging and destructive. I think of the way that, I think it was C.S. Lewis who described, and this really, it gets to the, the heart of an issue that is very, uh, just to the forefront of our culture at the present time. He said that, um, somewhere, he said that if you, if you love love or, or intimacy or um, uh, the pursuit of, of relationships um, that are self-affirming, you love this thing and you pursue it uh, as a god, it turns around and eats you as if it were a horrible demon because it can never satisfy what you were made for. And so the things that we love and pursue often in, in place of God turn out to be just the most horrible and, 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 and contrary to our joy and, and things that, that would eat us alive if it, if it weren't for God's restraining hand upon them. This picture then was given to the people so that they would have firm hope during their exile. For their exile would come. It wouldn't be abandoned by God. But God used this picture to show them that there was hope for them. God does not discipline his people because he has to get one over on us, as if it were a matter of, of keeping score. He does not discipline because he's cruel and demanding. God disciplines us to teach us how things ought to be. He, he disciplines us truly to make us fully human, to remind us of who we are and whose we are. God's discipline is not contrary to our joy. Far from it, it demonstrates his love for his broken, sinful people in a way that nothing else really could. It enables us to truly know and experience the goodness of God. And that's not the way that we typically think of discipline. I mean, why would you? No one likes to experience discipline. But we see in it the love of God in a, in a way that we would otherwise miss. We see that God's love is, is of a different kind than the love of the world. It, it gives rather than takes. It is totally different from the false loves of the things we sinfully pursue and, and worship, which, though they, they promise great things, always take more than we bargain for. Think about how great this makes God. He doesn't love us in the hope that we will return to him something that he lacks. He loves us because that is just who he is. 
And how amazing that God is the kind of being who is so totally perfect and righteous and glorious that out of his abundance, his love pours out on us and draws us into his fellowship and joy, even though we have nothing to bring to him. And we also see that the love of God is purifying. It destroys rival affections. It is attractive and lovely in itself. God doesn't depend upon his gifts to show us that he is worthy of our time and attention. On the contrary, God is so great and glorious and satisfying that even if everything we have is taken away, and if we have God, we have enough. So God's discipline shows us this in a way that nothing else can. And so in verse 5, Hosea says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek their God, which is really an amazing statement. God's discipline of his people will have the certain effect of bringing them back to the Lord. This is so contrary to our naive ideas about God's justice, which often pit it against his love. Here we see its redemptive effect in the life of his people. We see more of God, we know him better, and recognize his glory and his love for us through his disciplining hand. We see the emptiness of the sin we chased after and the slavery and death it brought us when God in his justice removes all we have loved in place of him and gives us himself. And we see in this verse too that God really does delight to give good things to his people. Remember that, that Hosea is preaching to the northern kingdom and they, they've been separated for some time from the kingdom of, Ju of Judah and the Davidic lineage. Uh, that is, they were separated, really, from the Davidic covenant in which God had promised to be with his people, to uh, never have them uh, lack a king on the throne. Uh, he promised them a kingdom that would never fail and a king who would be with them forever. And, and we know that this king is, is Jesus. And so what is promised here is that God's people in Israel will one day know true blessing and unity and peace. And it won't be a copy of of the thing that they set out to get in their rebellion, it will be the reality, it will be the real thing. The blessing that they sought uh, in their sin and rebellion will actually be theirs in uh, reality when they return to the Lord and to his promises. And, and so it is with us. Whatever we hope to gain in our sin, God will give us if we truly belong to him. Now, we don't experience this reality fully just yet as we live in the tension between the now and the not yet, there are things in, of God's kingdom which we joyfully experience, namely peace with God, uh, the firm hope that he is working all things together for our good. Or, or think about the way that, I, I love this, I, way, I love the way that Paul uh, corrects the Corinthians um, when, when they're, they're getting into all these divisions. You know, some of them are saying, well, you know, I, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. And, and think about the way that Paul gets at, at them. He doesn't say, uh, well, you guys need to cut that out. No, he says, look, if you're in Christ, Paul is yours, Peter is yours, Apollos is yours, life is yours, death is yours. Just going through, like all of reality is yours if you're in Christ. I mean, th that's, that's incredible. Everything is working together for your good if you are in Christ. So that every sorrow and every joy and every broken relationship and every restored relationship, every moment of, of, of goodness and every moment in which you just think, how could life get any worse? This is not what I was expecting. All the, death itself, life itself, is working together to make you the kind of person that God created you to be so that you can enjoy him forever in perfect righteousness and peace. I mean, the, the promises of the gospel are so astounding and they, they are given to us in, in so many different ways so that we know throughout the Bible so that we never miss the point that God is for us if we return to him. And, and so what, a, what an encouraging thing to know that as we often walk through affliction and brokenhearted 
experiences, as we often walk through things that we know aren't the way they were meant to be, we know that God is working even these things together for our good, that his disciplining hand isn't contrary to our joy. It is rather given to us so that we might know him better, that we might experience his goodness in perfect purity and peace, just as we were made to. Think about the way that Cameron challenged us last week to often meditate and reflect over uh, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. And oftentimes I think, um, just think about it, it's almost crazy that we have to be reminded of it, although we do. But, uh, you know, the the great glorious end of the story that we've been given a picture of, um, which ought to inform the way that we live in the warp and woof of, of everyday life, um, it's so easy to miss, but, but it's real. It, is, it will be as real as, as we are right now. That it won't be some ghostly sort of ephemeral sitting on a cloud playing some harp or whatever nonsense you know, we can sometimes imagine it to be. It will be real, and we will experience God truth uh, in, in reality. We'll know Jesus in perfect purity and peace, and we will have no reason to be ashamed. So we ought to think about this often and have it motivate and drive our affection and our fight against sin. So I ask you this question. Has God ever used a period of discipline to take away good things from you? And how did you receive it? And what gives us hope that this is not the final word? The hope that this is not the final word comes supremely to us because we know that Jesus reigns forever and that he made satisfaction for our sins and now mediates before the Father for us. But so many centuries before that, Isaiah kind of got at the heart of it too when he preached to the uh, kingdom of Judah. Listen to what he says. I, I, I particularly love this passage because it, it demonstrates in a, very, uh, in a very good way God's care and complete care for his people in contrast to the, the abandonment and the empty shadows that are the, idolized, the, the idols that we often chase after. So Isaiah says this, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. Just think about what a glorious promise that is to us, that in the midst of chasing after all these empty idols, in the midst of chasing after the sin that we thought would give us so much joy, but turned out to be just an empty shadow, that these things that cannot give, that always take, that shackle us to indebtedness and slavery, that cannot save us from the things that we hope that they would save us from, are all empty shadows in comparison to the reality and the complete care of God for, the peop- for his people. He has made, and he will bear, he will carry, and he will save. And so what does Hosea 3, 1 through 5 teach us? Well, at least two things. Hosea teaches us that sin corrupts and enslaves, but the steadfast love of God for his people never fails. It never fails. And it teaches us that God disciplines his people to draw us out of love with our sin and in love with him. Out of love with our sin and in love with him. The more and more that we experience God's firm hand in our lives, the more and more we are given an opportunity to recognize that he is better than all the empty idols that we chased after, that he is for us in every good way, and that though we walk through times that that are often difficult and that weary us, 
and that, that seem to be so contrary to the good promises of God, we know that even in those things, he is working for our good. And so God gives the people of, uh, of, uh, of, of Israel hope for their exile, and he gives us today hope that um, he is working all things together for our good, that nothing is lost on him, that no thing has he overlooked that is good for us. What a wonderful thing this is, and what a wonderful demonstration of the complete uh, and total care of the gospel, that it is good news for us in the everyday uh, course of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a God who cares for your people, that you don't give up on us, that you are long-suffering. Lord, we thank you that uh, as we consider the, the, the scene of this world and, and how contrary it sometimes is to um, the good promises of the gospel, we know that you are working all things together for our good. Help that to shape our affections, Lord. Remind us of your goodness often. Help us to meditate frequently, not on who we are, but on whose we are, um, so that we more and more might know you as our good father, as our good husband. We might long to, to mimic the, the, the affections and, and the, the obedience of Jesus, that more and more you might get the glory through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.